Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday the 16th of October with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Brexit negotiations come to a head this week. European leaders will meet in Brussels tomorrow. The hope is that a roadmap on the terms of a withdrawal agreement will be reached. Such a deal, if agreed, would be finalised at the November Council Summit. But that's a big if, with fear growing over the prospect of a no-deal Brexit. This would see the UK crash out of the European Union, the return of a hard border, and World Trade Organisation regulations applying from the 1st of April next year. Patricia Callan, Director of the Alcohol Beverage Federation of Ireland, joins us. And Patricia, you're not mincing your word in terms of how you view such a scenario. Uh, You believe that that would be disastrous. It would indeed, um, particularly for the drinks industry. We operate on an all-island basis, so our membership is both north and south, and it's absolutely critically important for that industry that the regulations that protect our products, um, specifically Irish whiskey, Irish cream and Irish poutine, which are our geographic indicators, so they're like champagne or Parma ham that can only be produced in the regions that are designated. But post-Brexit, we have a particular difficulty because they'll be the only three GIs outside uh, spanning borders in the EU and the UK. So it's important that we get written into the exit agreement, and I've got confirmation from the UK government that that will be the case, should the agreement actually get written. Uh, but then going forward, we also need both regimes uh, in future trade deals to actually write in protection for our GIs. And the reason is that if, they, if we don't have a good regulatory base, then as an association, we can't protect Irish whiskey against fake product in the likes of Russia and Thailand and South Africa. And growing markets, we're, see, we're seeing more and more fake product. And it's up to us as an industry uh, to defend against that registered trademarks take infringement proceedings, etc. So that legal foundation uh, is our first and, and, and a, a, a really critical piece that we can't have any regulatory divergence and we need a lot of specific protections written into the deals. But then as well in the context of our supply chains, we're very integrated. So for example, our Northern Irish members source all of their barley from the South. Again, if you end up at WTO rates, that's a massive levy and massive cost. Equally, all the uh, apples for cider making, most of them are grown in Armagh and brought south of the border. 
And then uh, a lot of the new craft producers, the craft gin makers, the craft whiskey makers, they're looking to innovate and get new products. So they're sourcing small batches of grain from, for example, Scotland. And they come by ferry across into uh, the north and then down across the border. And our members have done and looked at this and their own contingency analysis. And they estimate from similar experiences in other hard borders that it adds about €100 Euros per truck. Uh, in terms of the actual cost of, of all the checks and delays. And we have 23,000 truck movements each year. So uh, a massive consideration there as well. Right. Well, that is a, a massive consideration. Uh, what would it mean in terms of survival? Because uh, the picture you paint is of one that would decimate the industry. Well, I think, uh, again, businesses are planning insofar as they can um, to actually fully plan to actually move your entire supply chain. It's obviously very costly and not something anyone wants to do until they have more certainty about the outcome. But we're certainly uh, calling the government and the EU and the UK and we're dealing directly with all three about the importance of this as if we didn't know it but just in terms of getting the deal right that uh, we need long transition arrangements in order to to change supply chains should we need to be so that would involve essentially finding uh, other suppliers so even if you look at things like uh, the fact that on either side of the border you could have 40 suppliers in the other jurisdiction that will have implications for example in terms of things like VAT Mm. so VAT at the point of import hits cash flow uh, seriously like because you're an unpaid tax collector for the government as we all know but what would happen then is that you just wouldn't be able to survive in terms of cash flow. So you'll have to find suppliers in the same jurisdiction or move operations potentially uh, to, 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 to other jurisdictions. And certainly uh, the UK as a market in and of itself is critically important for beer and cider. 71% of beer exports, 85% of cider exports go to the UK. Um, in terms of the spirits industry, our main market is the US. The UK is still a very strong market. And certainly for uh, our craft producers in the north, for example, the craft gin uh, market is growing substantially, just like here in the north. We in the Republic are their big market. So uh, between tariffs and things like glass bottles, barley, apples and finished product, changes in, in taxation systems, whether that's fast or excise, and that regulatory diversions, all of those things would mean that businesses uh, would have to certainly relook at their supply chains, relook at how they're, they're operating. Now, in, in a sense, it's great that we have the geographic indicators because it means you can't offshore it. You have to make Irish whiskey, Irish cream and poutine here. It's not like other industries. But I think at the same time, it would certainly add to, to the cost base and, and uh, um, you know, I'd say dampen our growth expectations. Uh, at the moment, Irish whiskey is the fastest growing spurs in the world. Uh, and... Uh- What's uh, your thoughts uh, this morning? Do you believe uh, that there will be a a deal or that there will be a a no-deal Brexit? Uh, Because if there is uh, to be a a deal, I suppose uh, it wouldn't be too surprising in a couple of months from now to look back on today and uh, listen back to the statements that we're hearing about how we're moving towards uh, the inevitability of a a no-deal Brexit because there's always a a question of brinkmanship. Uh, Faces have to be saved if uh, that's uh, the case and uh, there's also the political dynamic of delivery and who's seen to deliver if there is a, a deal to deliver. But do you believe there will be a deal? Well, I would certainly have been a lot stronger uh, on it up until the weekend. I think it's a particularly difficult scenario because in most cases in negotiation, the party at the table can make the decision and that's it. Whereas obviously we know that in the context of the the UK government, the government itself is divided, the broader parliament, the broader um, political narrative is very different there. And across the EU, we obviously have 27 member states. But I think uh, everyone is very clear about our issues in this and that's good. 
but I think certainly, you know, there, there'll have to be some very strong analysis uh, around what all this will mean. And what's disturbing for us at a really practical level is just how little work has been done. So our customs here uh, ran an event in Ibeck yesterday and said they'd done no work, no preparatory work on North-South hard border because they mm. assumed it wasn't happening. Mm. Uh, my colleague flew to Manchester two weeks ago for a meeting with the HMRC, uh, the British Revenue equivalent, and they are only just, that was their very first meeting to consider the exercise control, uh, control movement. So I think, you know, at the, at the very least, coming cobbling together something that gets us beyond March is absolutely critical because otherwise I think you will see GDP being knocked in, in both jurisdictions and of course, it'll be too late before the British public wake up to what's happened. I think at least in Ireland, uh, people are very aware of the uh, of the threats. Uh, but I think also the government will then need to move to put in place remedial action. So, so far, they haven't been successful in terms of making the case to the EU about the need to change the state aid framework. So you may remember during uh, the banking crisis, there was a temporary exemption to state aids, which allowed a lot of extra funding to go into businesses which were hit uh, because banks weren't lending. In this scenario, uh, we have uh, a lot of businesses who have very great exposure to, to the UK. And if this was to happen, they it, it is, uh, would essentially almost threaten their survival. Uh, and, and diversifying is one thing. And obviously, people have been trying to do that. But I think we need to make that case much more strongly. And for example, uh, in terms of the 300 million Brexit loan scheme that was introduced uh, last year, under European Investment Bank rules, distilled spirits historically have been excluded. So they wine and beer and cider are fine, but spirits are not. And Why is obviously, that? I think it was just an accident of history or also right. there's a lot of protectionism, obviously, France and Germany with big wine and, and uh, beer producers, not spirit producers. But we started the campaign uh, since, since this came to our attention when the Brexit scheme didn't get through for us last year. Um, but the EIB is very slow to move. So I think the government would really need to up its, uh, its offensive there in terms of saying, well, we are exceptional. We are going to take an exceptional hit and that therefore that uh, we do need uh, extra support for business in Ireland if this was to come to pass. And we need to see that very soon. OK, well, with the prospect of a, a no deal, meaning uh, an additional €100 Euro in costs per truck and to the cash flow problems because of paying VATA at the border, what do you think it'll mean in terms of trade, jobs uh, and indeed for the consumer at the other end? Well, I think certainly in terms of, of trade, uh, the drink sector is more diversified. We're in 140 countries, but we're very heavily exposed to the US. Over 55% of um, Irish whiskey and Irish cream go to the US. So when the, the, the you may remember the talk of the trade war. Trade war uh, involved the EU putting tariffs on American bourbon and whiskey. So in terms of retaliatory measures, we were right up there for three and a half weeks. Uh, and that would have wiped us out. So I think businesses have to uh, certainly work to diversify into just more markets, just not safe being in, 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 in key markets. So I think in terms of our own programme of work with the agencies and, and Borbea and, the, and with EU support, looking for promotion of funding into the likes of Asia, mm. uh, into new markets. And very critically, I think, for businesses getting uh, uh, brand ambassadors, that's the model that we use to build up brands in, in, in third countries, to actually get more boots on, on, on the ground in terms of, for example, graduate programs and supports. Again, great expertise and learning, but we, we simply need to do that. But that um, means that in order yeah. to survive, you won't necessarily absorb the cost. You don't expect to be able to do that. Uh, you expect to survive by expanding the market. Expanding the market, certainly, and that would already, like I mean, I think we're on a great growth trajectory. So if anything, I would be hopeful mm. that this would just 
knock back those growth ambitions. But I think you'd have to replace markets and we would hope that it wouldn't take uh, the, the sector tremendously long to, to, to recover. But at the same time, we have a lot of startups. So four years ago, we only had four distilleries. Now we have 20 fully operational and another 26 in planning. So even again, in terms of the, 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 their own cost base, in terms of managing the supply chain and uh, the cash flow nature of, of this business would mean they'll need extra investment. They'll need support in the short term to get them over the hump to be able uh, to do that. And that would be really important. And I think from a consumer perspective, I think you will ultimately see it like pricing is a matter for individual companies. But if costs are piling up everywhere, then you're going to start to see inflation. Uh, and I'd say inflation will be a consequence of this across the Ireland and the UK because we're obviously we trade a lot in terms of food together but all into the EU as well and in the short term undoubtedly jobs would be lost uh, as well if we find out over the next few days let's say uh, that we are going to have to prepare for a hard border do you think uh, that there'll be enough time to put in place uh, the uh, customs posts etc that would be necessary in such a scenario or will we find ourselves in a scenario where we'll be closing roads well, I, as I said, the Revenue Commissioners here said, said yesterday they, they have done no preparation for North-South. Mm. They haven't even contemplated this. And I think that was at a political level. They decided that that was a stronger position to be in. But therefore, no, okay, I have no confidence that they'll be able to have a border next March. So six months wouldn't be enough? I don't think so. Mm. I know certainly, uh, to be fair, that in the likes of Dublin Port... Um, and at major access points and all of that, they they have already they have done a lot of planning and they have a lot of been working with the agencies around all of that mm. because I think the other thing businesses need to realise is regardless of hard or soft, from a customs perspective, there is absolutely going to be more paperwork, more checks. Uh, anyway, so uh, the hardness and softness just dictates how, how time consuming and how expensive that's going to be. But I would encourage, again, all businesses to look if they're, they're trading uh, overseas to look at things like AEO status, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, allows you to skip a lot of the, the, the detailed paperwork and each shipment, etc. But the thing, there are certain things that you can plan for and businesses have been planning for. And then, uh, but the, the border simply has not been one of them for either jurisdiction because the backstop was written in and everyone assumed it would be honoured. Okay, and that's without uh, talking about uh, the movement of people or security for that exactly. matter. And uh, I suppose uh, all of that puts it into context uh, how important uh, the talks over the next couple of days are crucial. Uh, is an understatement, I suppose, at this stage, Patricia. But what do you expect over the next couple of days? Do you expect uh, that we'll have a, a clearer picture by the end of this weekend? I think we have to, like, I mean, just in terms of the timelines in order to get um, the final agreement passed by both the European Parliament and the UK Parliament, uh, we always knew that this had to be, to be done by now. Our preference is certainly that they uh, would remain in, in essentially what is the customs market uh, with very little uh, deviation. But if not, then I think the transition deal should um, extend until there is a comprehensive free trade deal agreed between both jurisdictions because uh, those WTO tariffs are the things that we really can't contemplate. And from a border mm. perspective, obviously, uh, there's a lot more political issues as well as business around the, the Good Friday Agreement and, and its legally binding nature, etc. So I think uh, that, that that is the message we're solidly uh, sending sending out. And I think the, the if... if this doesn't happen this week, then I think government has to completely rechange its strategy and start to engage in business on remedial measures as of next week. 
Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. Patricia Callan is a director of the Alcohol Beverage Federation of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Body wise, the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland is reporting an increase in the amount of people using their services in the course of the last year. Barry Murphy, communications officer with Body Wise, is on the line. Good morning, Barry, and thanks for joining us. Maybe you'd begin. Uh, by telling us what you mean when you say eating disorders. When you talk about eating disorders, you're talking about the likes of uh, bulimia and anorexia, are you? Yes, good morning, Michael. So the three primary categories of eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. So how you would kind of define an eating disorder then is where we see significant disturbance in a person's relationship with food, in in their weight, and with their body. An eating disorder is very much considered a a health crisis as such, and it is a serious and complex psychological illness. Uh, And binge eating is certainly part of bulimia, is it not? Binge eating is part of uh, bulimia, yes. So I suppose what would differentiate then binge eating disorder from bulimia as kind of two distinct illnesses as such is in bulimia, a person would purge uh, to get rid of of, you know, uh, what they've eaten as such, whereas in binge eating disorder, there isn't that compensatory behaviour, um, and a person may talk a lot also about being on a diet, mm. and constantly on a diet, and the way people describe eating disorders to us as, to us as an organisation, really, is they talk about being in a vicious cycle. Right, uh, and uh, I mean, a lot of people are uh, dieting at any given time, uh, but uh, when you talk about a, an eating disorder, there's something else happening, is there not, uh, apart from the physical aspect of this and the amount of uh, foods that, that you consume or don't consume, for that matter. There's a, a psychological aspect to it, in other words. Yeah, very much so. So we have to kind of think about an eating disorder as something, you know, it's this kind of affects someone outside of the kitchen as such or outside of meal times. Um, you would think of it kind of on a spectrum. On the one end, you person may be eating kind of normally and then kind of maybe move into a diet and then something happens maybe where they cross over just kind of kind of on the threshold of developing an eating disorder and then they finally into the other end of the spectrum, you would have kind of a full-blowing eating disorder. But yes, there is a, there's a strong kind of psychological component absolutely to it. And that because of that psychological component, uh, people find it very difficult to stop that behaviour. It's not just a question of coming off the diet, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. You're right there. So, I mean, the driving force kind of behind it is as such as it is an illness, um, you know, develops kind of often over a period of time, quite gradually sometimes. One of the difficulties really is if, if you go out, go without kind of support, or help for a long period of time, you know, the illness does become more and more embedded and, and entrenched in a person's day-to-day life. And that's that's quite difficult uh, for the person to deal with on their own. And then also it presents challenges in treatment as well, because it kind of becomes kind of a default behavior as such. That's, you know, a coping mechanism, really. Mm. Uh, and uh, one that uh, is uh, all the more difficult to, to contend with uh, the longer it goes on. Absolutely, yeah. Certainly, uh, we've had people contact us, you know, who've had an eating disorder for a year, 10 years or more, which is a very long time for mm. 
for anyone to deal with a mental illness. Uh, and indeed to keep that secret because I, I take it that for a, a lot of uh, the people uh, who find themselves in this position, uh, they hide it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's often a very secretive, uh, very shame-based, kind of guilt-based uh, issue that people have to deal with as well. Okay, and uh, you've uh, seen an increase in the amount of people coming forward in the course of uh, the last year. You're saying it's also quite uh, notable how many more men have been seeking help from BodyWise. Yeah, so if we look back to a couple of years ago, for instance, so back in 2015, we had four men come to support groups. Uh, then next year, 2016, it was 26 men, so that was kind of a, another jump. And then last year, we had 57 men come to the groups, uh, face-to-face support groups. So effectively, one in three men who used uh, groups last year were, were men. Mm. And as you say, that's a, a 128% increase uh, in terms of uh, the support groups. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, gather that the problems are the same that people have uh, that lead to these disorders regardless of gender yeah i mean there are various kind of risk factors people can in, can experience before they develop an eating disorder so uh, it can be things like uh, genetics and uh, low self-esteem kind of any any point of change i think in a person's life or any transition like mm-hmm. say change of school um, or puberty for instance as well uh, low self-esteem, those are some of the risk factors we would see in eating disorders. Okay, and difficult uh, for those uh, who find themselves in that situation, uh, possibly more difficult in some ways for their family and friends uh, who also make contact with you. Absolutely, yes, it is. Uh, an eating disorder doesn't just affect the person, but the, the person around them as well. So I suppose the description we would sometimes hear, you know, is kind of from a parent or a family member is I'm, I'm at the end of my tether here. Or I'm walking on, I'm walking on eggshells. Uh, I don't know what to do because it, there's such a fundamental change, you know, in their son or in their daughter or in or a sibling or a friend. I think it's also really important for friends, you know, not to give up on the person and still kind of just keep the contact and still just you know, don't drop them as a friend. Still just invite them to things and don't ignore them because so, so social isolation, you know, that compounds the situation. Okay, and I'm sure people will realise uh, that there is help at hand through BodyWise. Thank you indeed for talking to us uh, this morning. Barry Murphy is uh, the communications officer with BodyWise. Now, two schools in Dundalk are featured in stories inside uh, the pages of the Irish Sun today, St. Mary's and the Louis. In fact, uh, St. Louis makes for the front page story of today's Irish Sun. Neil Cotter, head of news, joins us now. Neil, good morning to you and thanks for joining us Uh, and uh, this is a a dreadful story about a 12 year old girl yeah the the attack took place um, last Thursday just outside St. Louis there as you said in Dundalk Uh, now Alicia's 12 uh, she's in her first year um, and she was set upon by two girls who attacked her outside the school Uh, she was pulled down to the ground Um, and her mother told us yesterday that it was up to the attack itself was, was relentless and sustained. It went on for up to 15 minutes before a bus driver pulled Alicia onto his bus. Now, I don't know how many witnesses there were to the attack, but it, it, was, it, it was vicious in the extreme. 
It is the subject of a, a guard investigation now, and undoubtedly they'd like to hear from anybody who did witness what happened. Uh, but uh, it had very serious consequences for Alicia as well. She ended up in hospital, home, and back to hospital again. Yeah, hospital twice. Uh, she was kicked in the head repeatedly. Um, her head was also bashed against the wall. She was stomped on. So she obviously went to hospital on the Thursday um, and she was in there for quite a while but she was having tap scans and all that sort of stuff. Um, she went home dead and then she had to go back in on Saturday. Obviously she wasn't feeling great. Her mother, uh, Joyce, said she is is depressed. She can't leave her side. Uh, you can imagine she's been in school probably a matter of weeks at this stage and something like this has happened. So. It's obviously a very serious thing. Um, we did get a statement from the school yesterday. Um, they said they were they were they were upset um, as a community to hear about this incident, um, but they stressed that it took place after school outside the grounds on the evening of Thursday, the fourth of October. Um, so they didn't want to comment any further after that. But uh, the child's mother is extremely distressed about the whole thing, as you can imagine. Okay, and I think the school said in its statement to you as well that it is acting under its code of behaviour in response uh, to the concerns that have been raised with them. The other school uh, that you're reporting on in the Irish on today is St Mary's College, and uh, this is uh, to do with what might be cocaine which was uh, sniffed inside a classroom. It's a video that's doing the rounds on social media and as I say, relating to St. Mary's College in Dundalk. The, the video itself was captioned as, as Damaris is the place to be. So this video, we obviously, uh, we would have been one of thousands, I guess, to see this video. We contacted the, the school yesterday and the principal there, Alan Craven, he confirmed that the incident was being dealt with um, and he's assured parents as well that the matters are being dealt with appropriately and in line with recognised procedures. And he said that St. Mary's College would be making no further statements in relation to that. And it's a, a film, a short video that was taken on somebody's phone, is it? Yeah, it looks like it looks like the students are in computer class and uh, one boy appears to take a, a, a white powder substance out of his pocket, out of a, out of a little plastic container and uh, snort it using a key in the classroom. So that's what the school is investigating at the moment. And uh, I suppose uh, it needs uh, to be established as to what was in that plastic bag. It could have been flour for anybody's guess. And this could be an elaborate hoax, uh, but that is, the, that, that is the question, obviously. That is the question. And obviously that's something that parents will be very concerned about. Anybody who has uh, children in that school will be wondering what is going on. So I think the school will be at pains to, uh, to say that they are looking at, into it um, urgently. Okay, Neil, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Neil Cotter, Head of News with the Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Up to as many as 5,000 so-called undocumented people living in this country could have their status regularised under a new scheme which follows a Supreme Court case. Uh, To explain more to us about this, Catherine Cosgrave, Legal Services Manager with the Immigrant Council of Ireland, joins us on the phone. Catherine, uh, these are people who would have come here under a student visa scheme between 2005 and 2010, uh, but have continued to live here uh, subsequent to being here legally. They're illegal here now, in other words. Uh, So why is it that their status may change? 
Uh, good morning, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, that's correct. Yesterday, the Immigration Service in the Department of Justice announced the introduction of a scheme. And as you mentioned there, it has been prepared on foot of uh, a Supreme Court decision delivered earlier this year, which followed previous judgments of the High Court and the Court of Appeal as well. Um, it relates to individuals who would have been permitted to come to Ireland lawfully as students and to work here. Um, and then after a period of time, the rules regarding student permissions changed and uh, people find themselves caught out, having previously been able to renew, provided they continued to study, etc. Uh, the rules changed and they were no longer able to do that. And there were previous efforts to regularise uh, a certain cohort um, didn't work for everybody and what have you, and there persisted um, a problem. So the background to this litigation, for example, was that uh, individuals who find themselves in Ireland, however they have come in, in this case it was on student permissions, if they wish to remain in the state, they need to apply to the Immigration Service for ongoing permission to be here um, and, if necessary, to vary the conditions of their permission to be here. And the individuals who brought this case had made such applications um, and had set out the reasons why they wished to be permitted to remain living in Ireland. And it included the length of stay that they had been in Ireland lawfully, but also the changes to their lives over that period of time in terms of their employment history, but also their established family life in Ireland. So I gather that they've been here somewhere between 8 and 13 years. Yes, some people Mm. will have been here for a very long time, including for long periods of time lawfully prior to uh, that situation changing. Um, And what had happened was in making those applications to have ongoing permission and to vary the permission that they had, the Department of Justice refused to consider the applications at that time, saying we don't need to consider uh, the various, what we would call as lawyers, Article 8 rights, so private and family life. Um, We don't need to consider it now we can consider it later in the context of deportation. And that's a very different scenario for people who may have applied uh, and followed all of the immigration rules and then being told we'll only examine this in the context of a deportation process. The reason for that is if you engage in a deportation process, you either get a positive decision or you get a deportation order. And that risk would not be there for people who had lawfully made applications under a different process. Um, And so there's inherent risk there um, for them. And when the department refused to consider it, they brought their action and the the courts found in favour of them, saying that this particular category of applicant is more akin to a long-term resident who didn't have precarious immigration status um, and that the state is required to examine these private and family life rights at this particular point and not just in the context of a deportation procedure. Uh, The state appealed that decision to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal found in favour of the applicants and again the state appealed that to the Supreme Court and uh, the the court found in favour of the applicants. So this has been fought hard. Uh, It has been fought hard by the state um, (laughs) and and ultimately the applicants have been vindicated in the the particular cases. So as a response to that, um, as well as ongoing civil society efforts to encourage the state to deal with the situation perhaps outside of a litigious context and to just look at uh, dealing with the cases, um, 
the state has finally responded under pressure, I suppose, ultimately of a Supreme Court judgment to introduce the scheme to look at it. So the scheme was announced yesterday. Mm. Uh, the details were published on the Innes website. And I know you have some concerns about the scheme itself, but what about uh, the people involved? Uh, it's reported that this could affect up to 5,000 people. It's an awful lot of people to think of in that situation. How have they managed to live? What type of lives have they been living in this country? Is it similar to the situation that the illegal Irish find themselves in in America? Yes. Um, I mean, yesterday, as you say, the decision was broadly welcomed by by many, including legal practitioners uh, who work in the space uh, and also civil society organisations working directly with people day to day. Uh, people have been uh, waiting for the outcome of this uh, Supreme Court decision for a long time. Many people will have already been engaging with the immigration authorities, uh, so they have an application pending that they just haven't received a decision in respect of pending the outcome of the litigation. Um, In other instances, life may have moved on for them and they have uh, already regularised their situation through an employment permit or through, you know, other roots, you know, they may be the parent of an Irish citizen child or whatever. So every case is quite different in terms of uh, how, you know, the impact that this has had on them. But for a large number of people, uh, they have been getting on with their lives as best as possible in the circumstances, uh, perhaps continuing to work in an informal situation because they would have already had an employment history uh, during their, their period of studies in Ireland. Other people may be in far more difficult circumstances, uh, you know, experiencing destitution, possibly homelessness, maybe, Mm. you know, every case is going to be very different. But as you mentioned, uh, very akin to the situation of Irish people in the United States, where uh, the reality is it's difficult, you know, life carries on, you can't Mm. leave the country for the family wedding or bereavement and what have you, and a huge element of uncertainty. So the fact that there is a scheme, Mm. whatever flaws there might be in it, or criticisms or what have you, broad it is to be welcomed that there is an opportunity now that their cases will be looked at. It's what we would understand to be a green card, if you like, in America for the Irish and they can apply for that green card, if I can call it, uh, over the course of the next three months the scheme opened yesterday. That's right, yes. So um, obviously the the full parameters of the scheme are not yet clear. A certain amount of information was published by the Immigration Service yesterday. Um, it involves an online form, which yesterday uh, wasn't yet live. So no, you know, I personally wasn't able to navigate through that form to see what it might entail or what the difficulties might be. It's also, I suppose, important to clarify that the scheme is open to certain categories of people as opposed to any person who may find themselves undocumented in Ireland. So it is intended broadly to deal with people who were perhaps caught by the changes in uh, administrative regulations as well at the time. Mm. So it was like, these are the rules now and, oh, we're changing the rules. And they kind of replied them retrospectively and people just got caught out. So it is intended to deal with that cohort. Um, If they get this visa, I think it's set to last for two years after that. Uh, They may be able to stay on longer, but they need to demonstrate that they're self-sufficient here, not reliant on the state. But there's concerns about the fees. It it may be up to €1,000 in order to meet the application fees. And there's also concern about family members for people who are applying 
to this scheme. That's correct, yeah. So um, I suppose the, the first thing to note is that the, there's an initial fee of €700 Euro to be paid at the time of the application. 250 of that is an administrative fee that is non-refundable regardless of the outcome. The, the balance of 450 will be refunded in the event that the application is unsuccessful. Um, and then the balance of that 300 or the €1,000 that's in the public domain is the registration fee, which is the normal registration fee for any adult who is required, who is being granted a permit in Ireland. Uh, they have to register with the uh, Garda National Immigration Bureau and get a residence card. So that's fairly standard. But in respect of the concerns that have been expressed about the fees, I suppose, A, it would be recognised by people that uh, it's quite a substantial amount of money for any person, uh, particularly if they have uh, found themselves in very difficult uh, financial situations, you know, no access to social protection payments and possibly very limited or informal access to the labour market um, and and what have you, um, or not working at all, as the case may be, and like living in the goodwill of friends and others. Um, so there's that. Um, secondly, I suppose, just to draw a comparison with other fees within the immigration service, uh, the administrative fee of the 250 would be higher than the administrative fee for applying for a citizenship application, which is clearly a very different type of application also. Um, and this is obviously for a shorter period of time. Um, the overall fee is very similar to what would be paid if you were being granted naturalisation. And to put that in context, Ireland's naturalisation fees are the second highest in Europe. So for administrative processing, these fees are quite high, not just domestically, but internationally vis-a-vis other kind of fees that are levied in immigration services. Um, and I suppose that's where the concern was being uh, expressed um, and then there's the concerns about family, just very briefly, because I have to go to headlines. Uh, yes, but there's a concern about re- reuniting with other family members. Yes, yeah. I mean, the the scheme is intended to cover individuals who have established a family life here in Ireland. But obviously, some international students in the past would have come and left family members behind while they temporarily did studies and work and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And there's a lack of clarity about maybe entitlements, whatever about immediately, uh, but even over time. So uh, in light of the fact that the Supreme Court did characterise the cohort involved here as effectively long-term residents uh, without a precarious status at the time that the rules Mm. changed. Uh, That would be quite different, uh, again, to people who, for example, if you compare this with green cards or even Mm. other domestic arrangements for people who are long-term residents here, there would be kind of stronger entitlements to access family reunification. And so there would be a reservation about that Uh, on the part of people as well, uh, that it's very, very difficult. The studies are done about the impact of living family life long distance. um, And there are, of course, very many reasons why people do that. Um, Okay, but as you say, there are concerns about a scheme. The fact that there is a scheme is in itself a positive thing. Absolutely, and I think it will be very broadly welcomed uh, by by those who are most acutely affected by Catherine, yeah. thank you very much indeed thank for joining much. us this morning. Catherine Cosgrave is Legal Services Manager with the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots of them coming in in relation to topics today and indeed yesterday. Just on um, your discussion there with Neil Cotter from the Irish Sun on the uh, attack in Dundalk, Sarah phoned in to say she was disgusted listening to the interview just now and says, what kind of world are we living in when our children 
children can't even go to school in safety? What kind of youngsters are we raising altogether if they would attack one, attack one of their own in such an aggressive way? To kick somebody repeatedly in the head like that is just sickening. Mary was also in touch on the same topic and says that she couldn't believe her ears after hearing about that horrific attack as she describes it. What on earth would prompt such an attack and what consequence, consequences will the attackers face? She feels that those responsible must be held accountable for their actions. Another listener was in touch on the presidential debate, Michael. Mm. Uh, Tommy says that he feels that Michael D and Sean Gallagher let themselves down by not taking part in the debate last night. Even if polls would suggest that the current president has it all sewn up. Tommy feels that he should have made himself available to the Irish people and that um, Sean Gallagher should have done the same. That they are seeking people's votes after all and the people have the right to question them. Okay, yeah, well, Michael D. Higgins, uh, I think, explained this uh, on RTE, of all places, yesterday. <laughs> That's uh, right, and he, he said yeah. that he had said what he was going to do, and he's doing what he said he was going to do. He is participating in uh, the two television debates. Uh, there was a radio debate. I think he's given a lot of one-to-one interviews, and that's what he, he said he would do. That's what he, he's doing, and uh, he's doing that because he wants to talk to the people, he wants to take the questions, and he also wants to show some respect for the office of the presidency. So I suppose we have to make what we will of that. Yes, well, Tom's not happy either. Uh, He says, how can it be called a presidential debate when not all candidates took part? Surely all those putting themselves forward for... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The role, have a responsibility to the people to make themselves available for these discussions and to give the public the chance to put questions to them. How can they ask people to give them a vote when they pick and choose what they will or won't participate in? Okay, well, I 
understand what he means, but uh, I suppose you could uh, just say, look, they're, they're, they are going to participate in debates. Uh, there's uh, two television debates uh, to come, and uh, I think Michael D. Higgins has said uh, that uh, he'll participate in both of those debates. Uh, one on TV3 or Virgin Media, as it's known now, and That's the other right, then on RTE, yeah. and I presume that if he's participating, Sean Gallagher will as well. Yes, and they did the one on Radio mm. 1 there at the weekend. Uh, so anyway, that's just on the presidential. Moving on to your interview uh, yesterday with Eamon Ryan regarding carbon tax and the environment. Peter says he would agree, agree with Deputy Ryan on some of the points he made and that we all need a change of behaviour when it comes to combating climate change. But with Ireland being such a small country, how, how much can we actually achieve in all seriousness when it comes to tackling climate change. Surely it makes more sense for Deputy Ryan to focus on the bigger countries across the world and go to them to preach the importance of changing our behaviour and practices as bigger countries could affect greater change more quickly. He should focus on them rather than trying to impose more hardship on the people here. Okay, tell other people what to do and let them impose the hardship, is it? (laughs) Uh, Mm. On the interview with uh, Deputy Thomas Burr, we had quite a few comments in relation to this. Anne says... It made her laugh to hear Thomas Byrne proclaim that Fianna Fáil are engaging in sensible politics at this sensitive time for the country. Since when has any political party in this country ever been sensible in how they've dealt with anything? She asks. Mm. Both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, are killed claiming that they worked hard together to keep the country on track and to avoid an election. But Anne says from what she can see, all they are interested in is protecting their own backs and not upsetting the apple cart in case it forces an election. Because they all knew, no, if there was an election now, it may not go in their favour. They all know that. <laughs> That's <a bit laughs> that odd, yeah. nobody. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I'm sure mm. she must be talking about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael there. Okay. Um, mm. Mary says that Deputy Byrne is kidding himself if he thinks Fianna Fáil are the social conscience of the supply and confidence arrangement. Both parties are as bad as each other and are only interested in maintaining power. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure that they're both as bad as each other, given that uh, certainly combined uh, the two parties would command the support of most of uh, the people in uh, the country. It seems as though Fine Gael uh, would undoubtedly be the biggest party again after the next general election, if you're to look at uh, the opinion poll today in uh, the Irish Times. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that there's been any sway away from the two big parties. An email in from Danny who says, Dear Michael, it's sad listening to Thomas Byrne. The Fianna Fáil have completely lost the reason for existence. They have no policies other than supporting Fine Gael and have totally failed as a stand-alone party. Mm. John wasn't touched though and John says that Fianna Fáil have it right, that Fianna Fáil uh, are doing the right thing because of the Brexit negotiations, that there is no way the country should be going into an election mode while the threat of Brexit is hanging over everybody, that that has to take priority over everything else. Mm, Yeah, well, I mean, we could find ourselves uh, by uh, the end of uh, this week facing into the reality, not the prospect, but the reality of uh, a no-deal Brexit. Martin, uh, it was a joke listening to Deputy Thomas Byrne make out like Fianna Fáil are the ones keeping Fine Gael in check in the confidence and supply arrangement when it's plain for everyone to see that the two are essentially the same party. Fianna Fáil seem to have lost the courage of their convictions on many of the key issues and are doing whatever necessary to stay in power. Mm. 
it's this power thing again they're all talking about another listener was in touch on just in relation to fuel and the environment Carmel from Carlingford phoned in and she asks how is increasing the price of fuel going to help the environment all she feels it will do is add to the financial pressures that people are already facing why not go after the big companies and multinationals who are responsible for the heavier carbon footpaths etc instead of making life even more difficult for the ordinary person on the street okay well i mean i think there's uh, two answers to that or two strands to the answer one is uh, the idea that if you charge more or tax uh, the likes of petrol or diesel more, well then people will use less of it and the second strand is that if they don't use less of it, well the money that is raised through a carbon tax can be put into environmentally friendly issues. Uh, Jim was in touch just in relation to I suppose the streets we were talking about yesterday how well uh, the towns are, are doing in uh, keeping the areas looking well and he was listening in about, with regards to the shortage or the lack of fines, I suppose, Michael, was highlighted on the show. And Jim feels that this really is the key. He says that he agrees with the comment that we read out yesterday from a listener who said that the majority of people want to have a nice environment and they don't agree with dumping or would never throw rubbish on the ground. But he says there is always the few. And he feels that there are black spots uh, now, he, he's calling from County Loud and he says that there are black spots throughout County Loud that people know about where people go dumping. And he thinks that really the powers that be should look about trying to at least monitor these on a regular basis and catch the culprits. OK. So I'll leave it with Jim. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everybody who has been in touch. Thanks, Marie, for that matter. If you'd like to add to what's been said, you can ring Marie or Maggie now on 1850-715-958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, we've been hearing serious concerns uh, about how uh, the maintenance budget has uh, dried up in uh, Louth County Con- Council. Uh, councillors were told yesterday that uh, a number of uh, repairs have uh, been carried out in recent weeks across the county, uh, but uh, the maintenance is categorised in three different ways. Uh, it could be seen as an emergency, urgent or routine. Uh, the council says uh, that at this stage, it's likely that repairs in the emergency category only will be addressed because of a lack of funding. Uh, There's a a huge shortfall, as we've been hearing, probably a a million euro in the council's budget for next year. And uh, this may be made up by looking at uh, the councillor's discretionary budget or indeed uh, by increasing parking charges. We're joined now by Joanna Byrne, Sinn Féin councillor and Labour councillor P.O. Smith. Good morning to both of you. Joanna Byrne, how is the council in such crisis? Purely down to mismanagement, I would imagine, Mike. There's not only um, the one budget of housing maintenance that's that's ran over budgets. There's actually four budgets that I'm aware of that are in the same position. The fire budget is gone since May. The housing maintenance budget is gone since June. The fleet maintenance budget is gone since, since September. And the legal budget is gone since September. Now, that's only four that we know about. And they're only four that, well, obviously, the housing maintenance is the big one, but the other three have popped up in different discussions over budgets over the last few weeks, inadvertently, might I add. Mm. But we won't really know until we get into budget negotiations over the next couple of weeks as to actually how bad the situation is. Right. uh, That would make it sound irresponsible to have reduced parking charges in Drogheda. Maybe so, but the reduction of the parking charges in Drogheda 
the bottom line of that was that the residents, workers, shoppers, tourists, you name it, they're all at a disadvantage to those 20 minutes up the road in Dundalk. Okay, but you accept um, that it might have been irresponsible. I don't accept it was irresponsible well, at all. A lot of thought so. and a lot of planning and a lot of research went into over probably a six-month period into how we were going to resolve the issue, mm. what was best for the residents of our town, the workers in our town, the tourism benefits of our town. And to be frank, I stand over the decision that we made to reduce that to a euro, which hasn't happened yet. Peter Smith, what, uh, what do you... Uh uh, uh, or how do you look on this? Do you think it's uh, mismanagement uh, by the executive uh, or, or is uh, the executive being denied ways of raising revenue? Well, I think there's a number of issues here. I think the the big problem for us at county level is the uh, disinterest of the state in relation to the fu- funding local authorities properly. For example, uh, the local authority has to pay the increases in local authority employees' wages uh, directly from their own funds. We're also paying a million euros a year back on interest on lands that were made. we were made by uh, during the height of the boom. And uh, <clears throat> this land hasn't made its way back into the land aggregation scheme. And in relation to the housing maintenance budget, uh, that normally comes out of internal capital receipts. And we've got a million euros from internal capital receipts going off to pay loans. So... From a state perspective, uh, something's got to give. I mean, next year when we have to start paying back interest and capital and loans, the game is up. The council will not be able to do it. And the government's going to have to make a decision then in relation to what they do. Uh, We've heard some of uh, the situations that people find themselves in. Uh, The prospect of having no heat in their house, as uh, one man told us uh, recently, uh, we heard from another woman uh, who was telling us about a a ceiling falling down in her house and uh, the damp that ensued from a a leak. And uh, I see that Anne Campbell has been telling the council about someone who hasn't had heat in their house for almost three weeks, a sick person uh, for that matter. And these are the real-life stories of how people are being neglected because of how that budget has uh, been gobbled up in the way that it has. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had Damien English uh, coming to Loud County Council on, I think, two or three different occasions. And each all of the councils put it to him that we had got a significant problem in relation to funding uh, the local authority and providing services to people. And on each occasion, we were told that that problem would be sorted out, and it isn't sorted out. And as a result of that, primarily as, as a result of that, uh, people are suffering. I do think that uh, we need to look at the parking charges in Drogheda again. My preference would be <clears throat> to raise the parking charge to 120 and ring fence that spending for Drogheda. Uh, and similarly, Dundalk could do the same and then equalise the parking charges in both towns, and that way you could raise €600,000. I don't think people have a problem paying 120 if they believe and see that the money is being invested in their town and in services. Or 130 or 150 in both towns. I wouldn't go to 130 or 150. Mm. Yeah, uh, the manager uh, might. <laughs> she might go to €2. Euro. <laughs> you yeah. know, mm. That's the reality of it. I mean, But the thing about it is, that, I mean, Peter Savage put forward a proposal yesterday, and I seconded it, and I think it should be followed through on that the Cahillac of Loud County Council and, and the whips of the various parties should request a meeting with the Minister uh, because I don't see the budget being passed this year, and it, you know, it's not going to be passed in November, and I don't think it's going to be passed again in January. And I think this time councils are making a very strong statement to say that this is unsustainable 
and this, this needs to be really looked at and sorted out. Do you believe uh, there may be an effort to, to block uh, the budget being passed, Joanna Byrne, because as I understand it, that could lead to the dissolvement of uh, the local authority that uh, there would be no council? I don't think it would be intentionally an effort to block the budget. It would come down to whether councillors can stand over their conscience as to whether they think the budget is is satisfactory. And if you remember correctly, coming up to this time last year, the same issues were raised, and in particular, housing maintenance was raised by a colleague of mine, Councillor Kenneth kind of Flood, and they were told that there was adequate funding in that department. A couple of weeks later, when we came to budget process, councillors weren't satisfied with the, with the budget, and it wasn't passed. And it took a series of meetings and what not to eventually get it over the line by the skin of the teeth, might I add. And I, I have huge reservations and concerns that this year will be very similar. And it would have to be because you you couldn't stand over your convictions in a budget like this when you've got several different departments running out of funding less than halfway through the year and less than three quarters of the way through the year. So I don't know. It will depend on the figures and it will depend on what efforts are, are put in to improve funding. But if P.O.'s hit the mm. nail on the head, there's just not enough funding there. Mm. Well, be that as it may, what about uh, what's being proposed uh, by the executive uh, to cut your discretionary budget, uh, for example, or to increase parking charges? Well, then cuts, I think, were inevitable anyway. If you look at the housing maintenance budget alone, it was 5.6 million that was gone by June. That would suggest that you need at least 11 million, perhaps 12 million to cover things that may have escalated being left undone. That's a 6 million deficit to me, instantly. Um, the chief executive is talking of a shortfall of one million. I don't know where that figure has come from. And as I've said, we haven't, we haven't started the budget process yet. We haven't seen these figures yet. But to me, I think one million is, is short. Uh, a shortfall of one million is, is only short change in comparison to what's actually needed. Um, and I, I, I don't know where the other five or six million that's needed in this one department alone is going to come from. And, and that's going to be the big one for all councillors in, in in the chamber at the time is specifically going to be dominated by housing maintenance, I think. Mm. Uh, For people uh, who need repairs done to their house, uh, if it comes into this urgent category, what does that mean, P.O. Smith? What type of repairs would you be talking about? Because it looks as though they're not going to happen. Well, I see this is another problem too. I mean, there's three different categories, uh, emergency, urgent and routine. And as from yesterday, anyway, I haven't, I don't know about Joanna, but I certainly haven't been furnished with uh, the, the the different categories, uh, the structures of this, different categories. I know that, say, for example, if somebody, I would presume that somebody that has no heating in their house uh, would fall into the emergency category. Uh, I don't know what constitutes urgent. Uh, I presume it would be something similar. But I think it's... The, the emergency a, category, I think, sorry to overcut your feel, was heating and the fabric of the house being under threat in regards to leaks and different things like that. So, so, so what's urgent, Joanna? He didn't give a definition of urgent. I asked that, I started this debate yeah. by asking the Director of Services specifically, as as we all have a, a list, the length of our arm of people in, diff, in different categories as to... Um, you know, what constitutes an emergency, what constitutes urgent. I have a woman dying of cancer in Drada who's got no, no heating in her house and our palliative care team are bringing in electric heaters to try and give that family some comfort and not be distracted by the fact that the house is cold and whatnot. So I wanted to know where do, where do these people fall in? Who, who's going to decide? Who gets an input as to whether these are emergency cases or urgent cases? And no answer. 
not specifically on the urgent. I was told that that case specifically will be looked at today, but there was no breakdown on the urgent as to what it was. It was just the emergent with the fabric of the house. It's been under threat, leaks, etc. And then the director went on to add heating into that. But there was no mention of the welfare of our tenants. Where does the welfare of our tenants come into this? There's also another problem here too in relation to legal obligation that the council has to tenants. Now I did hear some councillors raising this over the last couple of days and uh, you know, it may be the case that, that tenants could look at taking legal action against the council if there isn't uh, quick uh, uh, resolution of their problems and that could be another issue for us in terms of like, more expenditure then on defending those cases, you know. Yeah, it's it's impossible to... That's already gone. It's impossible to understand uh, how private rented accommodation is given such standards that it has to meet uh, if uh, it's a council tenant, a local authority tenant. Uh, but uh, the tenant itself can provide housing to people that doesn't have heat or some of the basics that you'd expect anywhere. Yeah, well, if you cleared everybody out of Pierce Park and Yellow Batter and Drada, which was previously council houses, you could not put one person from the social housing list into, into any of those houses as they are today mm. uh, because the council would deem them not to be up to standard. Mm. And the standards for council housing at the minute are very, very significant in terms of heating, in terms of insulation, uh, and even the, the different types of fuel that are allowed to be borne in the houses. So there are very high, very high standards. Uh, there is... I think probably a different standard in the private rental sector uh, in terms of the fact that people can get housed there quicker. Now, there is a debate going on in relation to whether or not those standards should be as strict as for the council. Uh, the problem there is that a landlord can turn around and say, listen, I'm not going to spend twenty or 30000 bringing my house up to a certain standard, so I'm getting out of this. I'm not going to lease my house to social housing tenants and then just go ahead and lease it in the private rental sector itself. So it, it, it's a very delicate one, and it's a very difficult one to solve. But again, it all falls back to, to, to the situation mm. that the housing problem in the country uh, is something that has been building up for the last 40 years, and now we're, we're really suffering because of this. But the, the, the council isn't meeting landlord standards. The standards it sets for other landlords. Yeah, in, in terms of the fact that uh, they are not... Fixing houses I mean, as quick as they should be fixing houses. HAP tenants will not live in a house where there's no heat. They won't live in a house where there's no carbon monoxide alarm or a fire blanket or whatever the case may be. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. You know, that's a fact. I mean, you know, that, that is a fact. But, but, but the council is failing to meet the standards it's setting for landlords itself. Yeah, yeah, that's reality. And far from it. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's the reality that we find ourselves in here today. And I mean, like, the councillors, and indeed, in, in fairness to council, to council staff, they are really doing their best in relation to trying to solve this problem. This has really got to do with funding, and it's really got to do with people burying their heads in the sand, uh, particularly in government level. Uh, and as I said earlier on, this is going to come crashing down next year. We are spending a million euros a year paying back interest only on loans, not capital, but interest only so far. That's going to go up again next year to probably 1.5 million. It's unsustainable. Okay, it's farcical, some would say, Joanna Byrne. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. But they're in catch-22 situation because you can't take tenants out of these houses that are substandard at the moment because there's nowhere else to put them. All right.
tomatoes. And we leave it there for the moment. And thank you both indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin's Joanna Byrne and P.O. Smith of the Labour Party. Michael Reed on LMFM. The back to school clothing and footwear allowances uh, to increase uh, by 25 euro next year. The announcement made in last week's budget will apply to some 140,000 people next year, but highlights uh, some of uh, the ways that people are struggling in this country, not just because uh, the amount given in the allowance uh, comes below what parents have to pay in terms of sending a child to school but also because of how many people aren't actually qualifying for this allowance. This is according to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Marcella Stakem is Social Justice Development Officer with Vincent de Paul and on the line. Good morning Marcella and thanks for joining us here. Uh, there's far fewer people uh, who are entitled to, to this allowance than would have been the case back in 2011. Uh, you've been highlighting uh, how back then, some seven years ago, 50 6,000 more people qualified. Yes, uh, at the moment there's currently about 140,000 uh, eligible for the payment, which, you know, is still is a considerable amount of people that rely on that payment every year. Um, the numbers have decreased um, in recent years, but I suppose we would still be very concerned uh, that the payment itself does not cover um, the cost of going back to school and additionally the other uh, costs that it doesn't include so that back to school clothing and footwear allowance uh, covers solely your uniform and shoes it doesn't um, you know cover the other costs that Mm. we we know about like school books the voluntary contributions digital equipment and the list really goes on. There's other hidden costs that happen throughout the year for extracurricular activities and, and equipment. Uh, so really, families are still facing, you know, severe financial pressure um, because the education system is just under-invested, underinvested and continues to be um, underinvested in. Uh, getting less than a half, possibly as little as a third of what it actually costs parents uh, to send children to school. Because uh, what is uh, the allowance? 150 for primary school children and 275 for secondary school children. Yeah, so we welcome the increase in, in last week's budget. Any increases to be welcomed, although it's not currently at the levels that we you know, have recommended. Um, however, we, we do welcome the increase. But I suppose we're we're just particularly concerned about the cost, um, other than just what that uh, payment is for. Uh, we particularly, you know, the the voluntary contributions is a huge concern for us because, you know, in some cases there seems to be no limit on what schools are are asking parents to um, to give for their child's education, and also in in last week's budget there was no. Um, there was no recognition of the costs involved um, in getting a child ready, like for school books, uh, getting a child ready to go back to school with their school books. We had nothing um, or no mention on that in the budget, and that was very, very disappointing because we know, you know, supporting families, particularly families on low income, that you know, if you cannot have school books um, in place you really are at a disadvantage because you feel different from from your peers and that really really you know sets 
uh, a child and a young person on a, on a negative um, road as regards their education. Who is it that uh, apply or qualifies for the allowance welfare recipients, I take it, in the first instance? Yeah, it, it's it's mainly uh, people that are reliant on social welfare, although there is some people uh, that are also working um, that do qualify. qualify but the, the thresholds are quite low. Um, for example, uh, we would have asked that the thresholds be raised, particularly for um, one-parent families, because um, currently, as it stands, they can earn le- they have earn less <clears throat> than um, a two-person um, family um, to be eligible for the back-to-school uh, clothing and footwear allowance, and that's you know that's quite mm. harsh and on an unequal. There is some good news in this, of course, in that it's an allowance that people would have qualified for previously if they were in receipt of welfare, back-to-work, family dividend, a HSE payment or an approved employment scheme, as the case may be. But there's 56,000 fewer people in that situation. And I take it that means that, in effect, you're talking about a lot of people who've been taken out of the welfare trap and gone into the workplace and are fending for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, but at the moment, we have uh, roughly 780,000 people living in poverty. That's one in six. But what's you know, most worrying is over 100,000 of those actually have jobs. Um, so they are currently working, but are still living in poverty. And don't and, qualify. And, and may not qualify exactly for the, the back-to-school clothing and footwear allowance. So that that is concerning, um, particularly for an organisation like SVP that, that supports um, people that really are in huge financial stress. Because I suppose we have to look at the whole picture of a, of a family, and we're not just talking about their education costs when when we're talking about um, mm. the back to school. We're talking about the, the you know enormous housing costs that that many families are, are having to pay, like just to keep a roof over their head. Um, we did ask, you know, in, in last week's budget that the government would take account of that so that, you know, all policy decisions or all budget decisions would have a kind of a, a whole of government approach um, to them so that, you know, if they're going to decrease or increase on one level, that they look at that, how that impacts on, on another service that um, a person may be accessing. And, you know, we all mm. need to access the education system and the housing system. Okay. And they are two services that, you know, we we feel, you know, the government could have done a lot, a lot more. In terms of this allowance, it's to be increased by €25, Euro, which I'm sure is going to be welcomed by people uh, and it would seem a, a relatively big increase on the amount of money that is made available to people. Uh, but whilst the government is increasing the allowance itself, it's also making significant savings on what it's investing in this allowance because it was spending just under €50 million Euro, uh, and uh, that, uh, or it will spend just under €50 million Euro compared to €91 million Euro when there were more more people uh, entitled to the allowance. Yes, exactly. And it's, again, it's the families that SVP support and, and organisations like SVP, that it's those that are on low incomes, whether that's on social, in social welfare or in low-paying employment, they are the ones that are going to be most affected um, by not receiving 
this back to school clothing and footwear allowance because you know the calls that we receive we received up on six thousand calls um just directly related to school costs mm. and you know parents really um and appreciate the back to school clothing and footwear allowance because they simply just could not survive without it um so the the fact that people um eligible for it is worrying and and I suppose we're, we're we're saying to the government, you know, we we welcome the fact that there is an increase in the in the in that payment, but we would like to see kind of a more of a whole government approach. So mm. looking at the underinvestment in the education system, I think is is key here. So not just solely looking at the the payments and the amount of people that receive the payment. However, welcome. We really need to look at you know, how we invest in, in the education system. And are, are you meeting people, Marcella, that uh, only have the allowance when it comes time to go back to school, that they have the €150 Euro that has been given to them under this uh, allowance and uh, for a primary school child, they say they may be paying between 360 and €380 Euro instead of that 150 so there's a shortfall or they've a 275 allowance for a secondary school child uh, and may end up spending up to as much as €900. Euro. Uh, but are you meeting people who only have the allowance and don't have uh, the remainder? Yes, we are. Um, the, the money that is coming into a household in many, many circumstances is going on utility bills. So um, the fact, you know, the, the high rental costs, high util, high ESB heating costs, those things are, are things that need to be prioritised to keep um, a roof over a person's head. And um, sometimes it's in often cases what we're seeing uh, with parents is they will renege on their own, um, you know, care. They will renege on, on maybe food for themselves so that, you know, the, the big costs are, are you know, looked after. And they will ring SVP oftentimes in, in huge distress because they're worried about their child going back to school without all the, you know, necessary um utilities for mm-hmm. that, you know, so they may not have all the school books or they may not have the proper uniform. And they're extremely worried because they know the impact this is going to have on their child. And, you know, in many circumstances, we know that it it does impact on the child themselves because they do feel different. So the only way they manage is through charity? Yeah, unfortunately, um, like, you know, the increase last week uh while I said it's welcome, I suppose I don't think we're going to see a decrease in calls to SVP um, for help with school, you know, back to school costs. And yeah. that that is not... Um, and there are calls from people who get the allowance and people who don't get the allowance. Yeah, um, you know, we would we would support uh, many families that don't get it because they're they're just slightly over the, the threshold. Um, you know, many thousands of families really that... Um, should be really, you know, entitled to the the, the payment, but just slightly over, there may be one or two euro over it. And, you know, we have asked that, you know, many of these payments, these means-tested payments be tapered. Uh, so it's it's kind of a more of a, an equal system mm. for everyone. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Marcella, thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Marcella Stakem is a Social Justice Development Officer with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Sharon White of our D station joins us for the report this week. And we begin in Ratoth and uh, an armed robbery at a bookmaker's last weekend. That's right. Good morning, Michael. The guards in Ashburn are appealing for witnesses following an armed robbery at a bookmaker's in Ratos last Saturday, October the 13th. It was about 8.30pm on Saturday evening when a man entered Bruce Betting Bookmakers and he had a shotgun and he threatened staff in there. He actually jumped over the counter and he took a sum of cash as well. This man was described as wearing a white overall boiler suit with a hood and he had something covering his face. He was described as being over six foot in height and he spoke with a Dublin accent. We believe this man fled the store and got into a small red car which was parked in the street in the car park. Um, this vehicle sped off from the shop towards the centre of Ratoth in the Dunshockland direction uh, from Bruce, Bruce Betting. The car was later found burnt out in Dunboyne. Now actually we have an update on this and there was a suspect arrested yesterday and questioned in relation to it. But we would ask that if anybody saw anything around the area that they still contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01801. 0600. Okay, and there's a, a confidential number if uh, people would prefer to use that, and we can give that to you in a moment if you stay tuned or get a, a pen, as uh, the case may be. We go to Drogheda, another serious incident and uh, an assault that uh, occurred in the town. That's right. Drogheda Gardaí are uh, seeking your assistance in identifying two men which were involved in an attack on another man in the town last Saturday evening, again the 13th of October. It happened at about 6.30 on Saturday evening and two men attacked another man with a kitchen knife and they caused uh, cuts and slash wounds to the man. Now, there may have also been a female involved in the attack and received some injuries during it. It happened in the Bryanstown Manor area of Drogheda and local Gardaí are anxious to identify these men involved. Anyone who is in the Bryanstown Manor area after 6pm on Saturday evening and may have witnessed the incident are asked to contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200. Now to a report of a tragedy and a fatal road traffic uh, collision that occurred in the Navan area. That's right. We need your help in relation to this one. Navan guards are again appealing for information following the fatal collision last Thursday. October the 11th. It was a male pedestrian was fatally injured in this collision and it happened on the R162 at Butlerstown in Castletown on the main road between Navan and Nobber. The collision happened just before 10.30pm last Thursday night and Gardaí would like to hear from anybody who was travelling on the Navan to Nobber road around this time and if they could contact Navan Garda station the number there is 046 9036 Okay, some counterfeit notes in circulation uh, in the Drogheda area, but uh, I'm sure you'd uh, advise all shop owners and people dealing with cash uh, to be vigilant. That's right, absolutely. Gardaí and Drogheda are investigating a fraud incident which occurred in the town last Friday, the 12th of October. Three women went into a shop on Georgia Street around 12 midday and attempted to pay for goods with counterfeit 50 euro notes. In fact, we've had similar incidents in RD only in the last week or two as well. So we're advising people, especially businesses, to be aware that there may be counterfeit 50 euro notes in circulation and to please report any such incidents to their local guard station. OK, and we'll finish this week with a burglary. Uh, this was a break-in that occurred in Donor. 
That's right. Uh, Guardian and Leitown are looking to identify two men involved in a breaking into a house in Denor Village last Friday, October 12th. It happened at around 11am last Friday morning. Two men were seen entering the house at the Lek in Denor. They were then spotted getting into a silver Ford Focus with a, a 04D registration and they were dri- seen driving away from the scene. We've no better description, unfortunately, of these men, but anyone who was in the Denor area around 11am last Friday and may have seen this van acting suspiciously, they're asked to contact Leitown Gardaí and their number is 041 981 OK, and just to mention that confidential number, it's one eight hundred triple six triple one. if uh, people would like uh, to make contact with uh, the Gardaí using that number, one eight hundred triple six triple one. Garda, Sharon White of our D station, thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, in uh, the short time that we have left, let's go to some of uh, the many comments that have been coming to us since the last time you were in with us, Marie. Yes, Michael, Peter from Dundalk phoned in and Peter wanted to make the point, having listened to the councillors discussing the shortage of money and the possibility of car parking charges going up, his point is that the situation in Drada and Dundalk, as he sees it, he says, he's, although from Dundalk, he knows the two towns well, that the, the town centres in both towns are struggling at the moment. And he fears that if charges go up, that it'll entice more people to go out to shopping centres on the periphery of both towns where they can get their car parking for free or to, you know, further to other towns where they can get car parking for free. And he says it just doesn't make sense to him that you want to see the centre of your town full of life, don't you? He Mm. asks. Okay, well I suppose uh, the budget needs, uh, or the council needs uh, to raise uh, some money to balance uh, the budget going forward uh, and indeed to provide the services that people will hoping they can avail of. Jack from Cullen texts in and wonders how the council can have money at all when they won't fix leaks straight away. Leaving them to cause further damage is only going to cause more cost more money, is the point he's making. Mm. Uh, Eddie from Drogheda wants to know where is the income from the property tax uh, going to? Is that not supposed to go to local areas? Yeah, well it keeps the parks open and the libraries open and the lights on and all of that sort of thing, or at least that's what we were told uh, would be the case or that they wouldn't be open if uh, they didn't introduce the property tax at the time of its introduction. Eileen from Drogheda says it was listening to our comments and says it makes me laugh listening about the talk of a carbon tax and then you hear the St Vincent de Paul on your programme and there are families out there really struggling. They haven't enough money to send their children back to school. Where are they going to get the money to pay a carbon tax? We hear about a woman dying with cancer from your councillor who has no heating in her home because it's broken and the council has no money to fix it. And yet the government tell us that we are better off. Not all of us, I'm afraid, are better off, says Eileen from Drogheda. Okay, thanks Eileen. And everybody who has been in touch with us, we have to make that the final word on our programme today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast available on lmfm.ie this afternoon. And God willing, you'll join us for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie